Uh, I invite you to take your copy of uh, God's Word this morning and open it again to the book of Revelation. Uh, This morning, Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, and we'll continue through chapter 20, verse 15. If uh, you're new to making your way around the Bible, uh, just open it to the back and then flip back a few pages. You'll be in Revelation. It's the last book uh, of the Bible. The large chapters on the page, the large numbers on the page are the chapters, the small numbers uh, are the verses. We are in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Um, I'm a strange creature. <laughs> I, I like movies and stories that keep me on the edge of my seat. I like thrillers. I don't like horror films. I don't like being scared. But I like thrillers. I like things that, that kind of keep me guessing as to how things are going to turn out. I even like, this is, and this is the weird thing, I even like documentaries that do that to me. I hate being in suspense, but I love it at the same time. There are some documentaries that are just really great at doing this. It, 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 when you know the history, you know the whole story, you know how the, how the end of the story is going to happen, but still, in the way they present it to you, it makes you feel like you're right there in the moment. You have no idea what's going to happen next. Uh, the ESPN documentary series, The Last Dance, which chronicled uh, the, the last several year, or the last year of Michael Jordan's career uh, with the Chicago Bulls when they completed their second three-peat as uh, NBA champions, um, uh, two, two three-peats in the course of seven years, just insane. But following it all the way through, you get the sense of like, I don't know if they're going to make it. I don't know if they're going to make it to the finals. I don't know if they're going to win. And yet history tells us, and we have all the stat books and everything that tell us that they won and they complete, but yet all the way along, it's like, I don't know if they're going to make it. Is Dennis Rodman going to, you know, destroy this whole thing? It's entirely possible. It is, though, in like knowing the end of the story and how it's going to wrap up that that keeps us working through. There are some stories that are just too intense for me uh, that if I didn't know the end, how it was going to work out, I wouldn't be able to finish it. Sometimes, friends, life following Christ feels like, like that. Like not knowing how it's going to end, I don't know if I can finish this. We've had this constant call all throughout Revelation, run the race set before you, endure with faithfulness until Christ comes again. And yet, two millennia have gone by and Christ has not yet returned. It can feel like, I don't, I don't know if this thing's ever going to end and I don't know if I can make it through. I think the first century church to whom John uh, addressed the, the, the text of this revelation, this vision he received from the Lord that he sent on to the church, I think they probably struggled with the same thing. Their lives were difficult, uh, in, in many ways far more difficult than what we know and experience today. And they very likely were thinking, when is this going to end? I don't know how long I can endure. And so it is in the grace of God that in Revelation, the Lord gives a, a word of encouragement, a vision that encourages the church to keep enduring with faithfulness until Christ comes again. And it is a vision of his glorious return, his victory at the end of all things. So as to say, church, you can endure because in the end, Jesus wins. I invite you to stand as you're comfortably able as we read Revelation uh, 19, verses 11 through 21. We're going to read, uh, we'll get through all of the, uh, the, the text of chapter 20 today, but for now, just 19, 11 through 21. John, who received this vision, writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he received, uh, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. This is God's word. You may be seated. We will find over the course of Revelation 19 and the end of 19 and all of 20 that at God's appointed time and in his appointed way, Christ Jesus will return as victorious king to judge the living and the dead, to give life in the new creation to those who are saved by his grace and to relegate those who have opposed him all their life long to everlasting torment in the lake of fire. The main idea that comes to us from Revelation 19.20 this morning is this. In the end, Jesus wins. In the end, Jesus wins. And in many ways, all of Revelation has kind of been building to this moment where we see the victory of Jesus. This morning, being certain of Christ's ultimate victory, we as believers must learn to exercise charity about non-essential matters that come to us in Scripture. Uh, we're going to get in chapter 20 to the millennium. And uh, many of you have been probably chomping at the bit to get to this passage. And I just want to tell you this morning, I'm going to make all of you happy and all of you disappointed at the same time. But the millennium, the, 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 whatever, however we understand the millennium from the first part of chapter 20, it's a non-essential matter when it comes to the gospel. Uh, do, do, what you think about the millennium does not make you a Christian or not. It is salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ right that uh, that secures us uh, that secures our salvation, so we need to, in light of christ 's ultimate victory, be charitable with one one another about these non essential matters, and all the more galvanized, energized in unity around the essential task of bearing witness to Christ and making maturing disciples of him until he returns because he 's coming again because he wins in the end, we must be charitable with one another about things that aren 't first-tier issues, and all the more energized to, to endure with faithfulness, being faithful witnesses of Jesus until he comes back. Now, this text I see this morning, breaking uh, 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 Revelation uh, 19 through 20, breaking into three different parts. The first part is what we just read, 19, 11 through 21, which shows us that Christ will return in victory. Christ will return in victory. Let's remember at this point, that when John wrote down the Revelation, he didn't include the chapter and the verse numbers that we have in our Bibles today. So the breaks that we have in our Bibles, the paragraph breaks, the chapter, the verse breaks, are all a little bit arbitrary. 
So remember how we got to Revelation 19 and this vision of Christ riding in victory on a white horse. We got here by way of the rejoicing that the saints do over the destruction of Babylon. The wedding supper of the Lamb from Revelation 19, the early verses of Revelation 19, now dissolves into a new vision of Christ coming to rule in power. Now we know at the beginning of uh, uh, verse 11 that this rider on this white horse is Jesus. And we know that it's Jesus because John uses a host of other descriptors for Jesus that he's already used in Revelation. And, and here he's sort of, we'll find him taking these, these numerous different descriptors of Jesus all throughout Revelation and kind of tying them all up in a, in a wonderful little bow in this person of Christ riding in on this white horse. Here are the descriptors. We'll just blow right through them. They should be familiar to all of us. He is faithful and true, which uh, recalls, uh, uh, John saying that Jesus is the faithful witness, the true witness from Revelation 1.5 and 3.14. His eyes are like a flaming fire. We saw that in 1.14 and 2.18. He is crowned with royal divinity. We saw him uh, uh, giving a crown of life and crowning those who come with him in 2.10 and 14.14. He has a name that no one knows but himself. This is possibly a reference to the divine name of Yahweh, which devout Jews would never pronounce out loud when they were reading Scripture out loud, so as to say, Jesus is God. He is divine. And that takes us back to 2, 16 and 17. He is the one who is overcome by his blood. His robe is dipped in blood. And this is not the blood of his enemies. It's probably the blood that he has shed for the sins of many. He's overcome by his blood. Uh, Revelation 5, 9 and 12, 11, we're told that already. Here in 19, we see that he is the word of God. That is his name. It's kind of funny. John says he has a name that nobody knows but himself, but he's also called Jesus faithful and true, the word of God, king of kings and lord of lords. So which is it, John? Does he have a name or doesn't he? Again, this is the difficulty of Revelation, right? We have lots of symbols and stuff that overlap and it gets a little bit fuzzy, but, but we get the overall point of it. He's the word of God. Now here I have to cheat a little bit because John doesn't call Jesus the word of God in Revelation, but he does call Jesus the word of God in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1. So it's not all Revelation, fair enough, but it's still John. Will you give me that? His clothes, he, he, Jesus clothes his people in white linen. The armies of heaven come in fine linen, white and pure, reminding us of the garments of righteousness, the white garments of righteousness that Jesus gives to his people from chapter 3, 4, and 5, uh, and verse 18, chapter 6, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 9, and chapter 17, verse 14. His words are a sword. There's a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We learned that about him uh, in the first vision we had of the risen Son of Man in chapter 1, verse 16. He rules with a rod of iron, John tells us, which is a reference uh, from Psalm chapter 2, but also Revelation 2, 27 and 12, 5. He treads the winepress of the wrath of God. We were told about this in Revelation 14, 20. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, John says, a title that was ascribed to him in chapter 17, verse 14. So all of these descriptors from all throughout Revelation, now here all tied up in 19, 11 through 21. Isn't that awesome? I love how John, how John does this, how, how he says to, to those of us who are reading, this guy on the white horse, this victorious one, is the one we've been talking about all the way along. There is no doubt that this one on the, right on the white horse is Christ. That he's the, the, this is the risen son of man, the lion of Judah, the lamb of God, who has been calling his people to faithful endurance for his name all through Revelation. And now, on the, and now he's on the scene in glorious power. The one who said, 
Behold, I am coming quickly, is now giving his people a picture of just the sort of majesty with which he will come. Behold, I am coming quickly, and when I do, it looks like this. And he comes on a white horse with all these various descriptors to execute judgment. He doesn't come riding on a white horse to show it off at a dog and pony show. He comes to execute judgment. An angel comes in verse 17 and gives an invitation to a supper. And we've had an invitation to a supper already in chapter 19. We had an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But this supper is not the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is called the great supper of God. And the guests are not people. The guests who are invited to this supper are scavenging birds who will eat the flesh of the enemies of Christ. Verses 19 through 21 of this chapter describe again for us, I think, the the final result of the battle of Armageddon. The beast with all the kings of the earth gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. And what's the end result? Destruction for God's enemies. Christ destroys his enemies. And not, not by swinging a sword that's hanging from his hip, but by speaking a word that, that destroys them upon its speaking. He destroys his enemies by his word and they are left as food for vultures. As uh, Pastor Danny and I met earlier in the week uh, to talk about the text and uh, think about uh, you know, kind of what it's saying and how, how to understand it and how to apply it to our lives today. I was struck by this image of Jesus right here at the end. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And I was just struck by the overwhelming power, the overwhelming uh, majesty, the glory, the decisive nature of the word of Christ, of the word of God. He doesn't have to overcome by brute strength, although he has all strength in the universe. He doesn't overcome by, by blowing everybody to pieces with machines of war. He overcomes by speaking. Inasmuch as God created the world by speaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And what was there? Light. And all along the way in creation, God speaks and it is created. Jesus is himself, John says, the word of God. So how does he overcome? How does he bring victory? By speaking. His word does the work. Understand this this morning, church. And I've been struck by this, and I pray that you are too. That God's word does his work. And God's word brings his victory every time and without fail. God's word does these things. God's word does these things. Uh, I, am, I am often frustrated, and even with myself, at how often we in ministry leadership, and even, even as churches, we rely on tactics of our own energy. We rely on our own charisma. We rely on our own efforts, our own wisdom, the wisdom of others that have gone before us to, to, to grow institutions, even like the church relying on ourselves to do the work, yet all the way through, how is God accomplishing his will all throughout scripture? By his word, by his word. He starts that way. He creates all things by his word and he brings victory at the end of all things by his word. So dear church, why would we mess around with anything else? This is, this is in part why I am committed to preaching through whole books of the Bible in sequence. Why? Because this is God's word. And what you don't need, what we don't need is a creative word from me, which by the way, I have very few, but we need the unchanging, ever living, never failing word of God to change our hearts, to form our ministry, to propel us uh, into mission in the world. 
God's word does his work and brings his victory every time without fail. Let's lean upon it. John goes on. He sees more. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. He writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I have had much trepidation about preaching this passage in this series because Revelation chapter 20 speaks about the millennium, which is a, uh, an often hotly contested issue in the church and among Christians. What we see, though, overall, irrespective of our uh, conclusions about the millennium, is this. That Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, or 1 through 10, tell us this much for certain. That the king, who is Christ, brings his kingdom and destroys his enemy. That much we know for sure. Now, there's a lot that we can quibble, out, quibble about, but that much we know for sure. The king brings his kingdom and he destroys his enemy. The millennium, this thousand years that's referenced a number of times in these verses, or the millennial reign of Christ, uh, as some refer to it. Uh, let me just say about this, as I said earlier, I'm going to disappoint all of you and I'll make all of you happy at the same time because I'm not going to deliver to you the definitive way to view these texts. It's funny, the millennium has often been called a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. <laughs> there are essentially three different positions uh, on this matter of the millennium uh, and the binding and releasing and destruction of Satan that have been posited by Christians throughout Christian history. Each of the positions is summarily named according to its perspective on Christ's return with regard to the millennium. All of these views espouse detail on more than just uh, this one detail of Christ's return, but it helps us to, to kind of maybe have an encapsulation. So I haven't done this throughout Revelation, but I'm going to do it today, where we're going to survey uh, some of the uh, various perspectives, the, the three major perspectives on the millennium. I'd like to call this fun with charts with Stephen Bum. And I've said before, I understand, I'm a total hypocrite this morning, because I've said all before that Revelation does not exist to, to help us to develop handy, tidy little charts and timelines for the end of all things. And yet, to some degree, we kind of have to think about 
how do these things come? So we're going to deal with these three issues and we're just going to, uh, I'm not necessarily going to throw my lot. No, that's not true. I will throw my lot in with one, but I do it humbly and, and even reservedly because I'm not even certain that it's the best one. So let's just work through them in order. The first view, and you'll see a chart on the screen behind, the first view is known as premillennialism. The premillennial position has been held and defended by Christians since at least the early church fathers, uh, Irenaeus and Papias. Premillennialism follows a reading of scripture that, it, that intends to read the text of the Bible as straightforwardly and literally and in, and, in, and in order as possible. I'll get the words out. So when they come to the matter of Revelation 19 and 20, the premillennialist sees a distinct chronology at play. They see a distinct sequence of events. In the premillennial paradigm, the church of Jesus Christ, after his death, burial, uh, resurrection, and ascension, the church of Jesus Christ, which is composed of both believing Jews and Gentiles, will carry out the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them everything, uh, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, throughout this time of, fulfill, of carrying out the Great Commission, uh, the church will experience various victories and even defeats for an indefinite period of time. No, one, no premillennialist has yet to say how long uh, the church age or this age between Christ's first and second comings is. It's at least 2,022 years long. Now, over the course of time, premillennialists believe that the sinfulness of man and the influence of Satan will increase in the world, thus diminishing the church and its influence. At some point in time, in the future, Satan will conspire with sinfully deceived human institutions to initiate an intense global persecution of the church, a period known as the Great Tribulation. Now, some premillennialists see the Great Tribulation as a literal seven years. Some see it as a figurative seven years. But during this period, the church will be all but extinguished on the earth, and many will deny the faith and join with satanic powers, and as many of uh, the Christian faithful are put to death or otherwise extremely persecuted because of their faith. Now, at the end of this period of tribulation, Christ will return as King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19.11. And he will destroy every power on the earth, Revelation 19.20 and 21, every power that opposes him. And he'll throw the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Simultaneously, at that moment, Christ will bind Satan and remove all of his... Uh, wicked, sinful, spiritual influence on earth. That comes to us from Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And at this moment, Jesus will then administer his kingdom in full on earth for a literal 1,000 years. Though some premillennialists say that the millennium may be figurative for a period longer than 1,000 years because John uses numbers figuratively or symbolically, rather, all throughout Revelation that 1,000 years might actually be longer than 1,000 years. The return of Christ prior to the millennium is what the pre in premillennialism distinguishes. Christ returns to establish his kingdom before the millennial reign. Now, during this earthly millennial reign, it's important to remember in the premillennial uh, uh, paradigm, Christ's millennial kingdom is on earth, on this earth, literally. During this earthly millennial reign, Christ will physically resurrect and glorify those saints who died in Christ prior to his coming. This is what is meant by the first resurrection. Uh, Revelation 25. These resurrected saints then will rule with Christ on earth during these thousand years as a reward for their faithful obedience, even unto death during the time of the great tribulation. Now, when the millennium is ended, Satan will be released and allowed to deceive the nations one more time. 
As such, the millennium is not an age where everyone uh, in the millennial uh, kingdom is converted to faith in Jesus. There are still unconverted, unregenerate, unbelieving people living in the time of the millennium. The premillennial, uh, premillennialist views unregenerate sinners continuing to rebel against Christ and his manifest kingdom during the whole millennial reign, but without ultimate victory over his uh, kingdom in any sort of way. So when Satan is released at the end of the millennium, he's able to deceive the unbelieving to such a degree that they form a global alliance against Christ, gathering against him at the last battle. Uh, That's referenced uh, to us here. Uh, They would say that that's referenced here in verses 7 through 10. Satan's um, uh, deception and gathering of Gog and Magog, which are references to to enemies of God from uh, uh, the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, gathering them together to oppose uh, the Lord. This last battle is hardly one at all. It's hardly a battle at all because fire comes down from heaven to destroy the enemies of Christ. And Satan is then summarily thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet who have been there for at least a thousand years at that point. Now concurrent with Satan's expulsion to the lake of fire, Jesus will resurrect all people from the dead for final judgment. We'll get to the judgment before the great white throne in a moment. Uh, And those who are redeemed by faith in Christ will enter into the eternal state, the new heavens and new earth, uh, in resurrected and glorified bodies. And those who lived their whole lives and died in sinful rebellion against God and his Christ will be relegated to the lake of fire uh, in their resurrected bodies where they will experience everlasting torment under the righteous wrath of God. This is what is referenced as the second death in 20 verse 6. Now this position that I've just... Uh, highlighted for you, the position you see sort of uh, uh, graphicalized on the screen there. And let me just say, this is not as detailed as many have tried to make it. And that's because even within premillennialism, there's a lot of differentiation uh, about particular times and how things play out. But this position that I have uh, uh, presented to you just here is generally regarded as historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism, because it's the form of premillennialism that has been most historically held in the church from church fathers Irenaeus and Papias and onward. There is a newer form of this eschatological scheme that is called dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism, friends, is historically new. It was developed by the Scottish theologian John Nelson Darby in the late 1800s and was popularized in the United States by C.I. Schofield in the notes to his Schofield Study Bible. Uh, D.L. Moody, popular preacher, was a dispensationalist. Hal Lindsey, who was a Christian author who in the 1970s wrote The Late Great Planet Earth and a whole bunch of other books. And also Tim LaHaye, who is the chief author behind the Left Behind series. These guys have popularized uh, dispensational premillennialism, uh, particularly throughout the global West. Dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism, separate from or different from historic premillennialism, holds that most of the major structure of, of it holds most of the major structure of historical premillennialism, but it adds that a proper biblical understanding of the covenants in the Old Testament between God and Israel creates two plans for redemption by God in the world: one plan for Israel and one plan for Gentiles or for the church. Now the plan of salvation that God was working in the Jews, dispensationalists would say, got, he hit pause on that when, uh, after Jesus uh, was not received by the Jews as their Messiah. And he inserted this parenthetical church age. And when the church age is over, then he's going to finish his redemptive work with Israel in the millennium. Dispensationalists also hold that the church will be secretly raptured from the earth prior to the great tribulation, taken out of the world by Christ in the great tribulation, during which time God will do a work of great revival among ethnic and national Israel. 
During the millennium then, dispensationalists posit that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt, sacrifices there will resume, and Christ will rule as rightful Jewish Messiah over a global kingdom administered from Jerusalem. Let me say at this point, I think historic premillennialism has a lot going for it exegetically, biblically. Um, let me also say, I don't think that the weight of evidence, favor, exegetical evidence, favors dispensationalism. I know many of you are probably uh, have been influenced by dispensationalism. I was, uh, even as a student. I remember watching that movie, uh, A Thief in the Night, and being terrified of the rapture. I just want to, and we don't have time to go into it in detail this morning. I just want to say I think the better weight of evidence is in historic premillennialism, not dispensationalism. But that's just one biblical view. Here's another. We have premillennialism, and then we have postmillennialism. Are you having fun yet? Postmillennialism, I really want to be a postmillennialist. Postmillennialism sees, the pri- uh, sees primarily the return of Jesus to judge all things as coming after the millennium. Postmillennial. Postmillennialism maintains a very optimistic view of the, thi- uh, of, the, uh, of the end of all things. Most holding to the postmillennial position are preterists or partial preterists, meaning that they maintain that most, if not all, of the prophecies of Revelation have been fulfilled except for the final return of Christ and the judgment of the world. They would find fulfillment of these prophecies in the roughly 40 years following the ascension of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So in this way, the Great Tribulation was just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, and there will not be any more sense of globalized persecution of the church, a unified, uh, organized persecution of the church. As such, Postmillennialists are likely to view Revelation 19 with Jesus riding on a white horse as symbolic for the victory of Christ over sin and death in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. The beast and the false prophet they would see as Rome and the Jewish ruling elite who were in bed with Rome uh, politically and the judgment of Christ upon them was in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was the initial start of the ministry of Jesus uh, in which Satan was bound. Matthew 12, 29, Jesus says, if I, cast out Satan, uh, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come among you. The kingdom has come upon you. Right? So Jesus seems to say very clearly, the kingdom is here. And though presently active, Satan is unable to deceive whole nations because Christ has bound him. He's active, but he's on a leash. The gospel, postmillennialists affirm, as all views do, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, following Romans 1.16. And as individuals believe the gospel and are changed from within by the Holy Spirit, they will expand the kingdom of heaven on earth through the righteous rule of lawmaking uh, of nations based on the scriptures. This being the case, they maintain that the millennium is not a literal thousand years, but symbolic, again, for an indefinitely long period of time where Christ reigns from heaven over the affairs of earth through the advance of the gospel and the growth of his church. In this way, the postmillennial position anticipates a growing peacefulness on earth as the world is broadly Christianized. Uh, many postmillennialists would say, uh, or, or um, uh, let me, uh, sorry, um, uh, opponents to po- the postmillennial vision of things would say, things are certainly not getting better. They're getting a whole lot worse, don't you see? And the postmillennial would say, when was the last time you had dental work without anesthesia? Right? That's, that's uh, an evidence, right, that things are getting better. We're not having to do root canals, you know, by just, you know, drinking a whole jug of whiskey and hoping for the best. 
At the end of this millennial kingdom on earth, post-millennialists say that Satan will be released. He'll be let off his leash for a short period of time to attempt one last coup, to steal the kingdom from Christ one last time. But Satan will be ultimately put down by Christ at his coming. The first resurrection in chapter 20, verse 5, the post-millennialists would say, is what believers experience in being born again by faith in Christ. And, con- and, the, and the first resurrection is continued in the intermediate state uh, where the souls of dead Christians go to be with Christ until his second coming. At Christ's ultimate return, he will resurrect all the dead and execute justice from his throne. Those who are in Christ by faith will be given glorified bodies in which they will enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Those who die in lifelong rebellion against Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. Will there have everlasting torment under the righteous wrath of God? The post-millennial position was largely adopted and popular among the Puritans and among some Anabaptists about uh, 300 years ago or so. The great colonial American theologian and pastor, one of my favorite theologians, uh, Jonathan Edwards, was a convinced post-millennialist. And he attributed his conviction uh, about post-millennialism in part due to the fruit of the first great awakening in the colonies in the 1700s. During that time, the colonies saw such a great influx of believers in the church, uh, believers in Christ and spread of the gospel that they were convinced this was the beginning, this was the dawn of a golden age of Christianity that would spread across the globe, advancing greatly the millennial age on earth. That's post-millennialism. There's a third view known as millennialism. Ah, millennialism, if you haven't fallen asleep, like the two positions above, ah, millennialism is described by its prefix, ah, millennialism. Ah, uh, in Latin means no or not. So literally taken, this uh, is the no millennium position. But that's a really unfortunate descriptor of this position. Ah, millennialists today would prefer a term something like realized millennialism or inaugurated millennialism. But uh, that's really hard to get out of your mouth, so they just stick with all millennialism. All millennialists come to their position by recognizing patterns of recapitulation, of, of repeating of events and descriptions of events with different emphases all throughout the course of Revelation. I've pointed this out, and, and, and even premillennialists and postmillennialists do the same thing. They say there's, there's something cyclical about what John is describing in Revelation. All millennialists generally see the parallels between the seal and trumpet and bowl judgments as indicating one course of events, not three. One course of events that carry out the judgment of God against sin in repetitive but recognizable ways throughout the church age. All millennialists would agree with both premillennialists and postmillennialists that God's word must be taken seriously and interpreted according to the most plain meaning of the words that the author uses. However... All millennials also recognize that literary context and not just the words themselves guide the uh, understanding of the text because Revelation falls into the highly symbolic literary genre of apocalyptic. Its various visions must be interpreted in light of the symbolism that John is using and the symbolism that John is intending uh, in conjunction with how those symbols have been used in other Christian apocalyptic texts, particularly in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. So put simply, the amillennialist position views the kingdom of Christ as already inaugurated at the first coming of Christ. Jesus said, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. Likewise, Jesus instructed his disciples saying, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you, Luke 10. 
Likewise, when the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom would come, expecting a manifest political kingdom, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, Jesus says in Luke 17. Finally, after Jesus was raised from the dead and before he ascended, the disciples asked him when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus instructed them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1, 7 and 8. At the same time, while Jesus has a number of different times seemed to say the kingdom is here, there are also a number of, of, of places, and even through Jesus' parables, uh, that he seems to be teaching that the kingdom is also a thing that is coming in the future. So it's here, it's already, and it's coming. It's not yet. Nevertheless, when Jesus ascended to heaven, we affirm that he went to the right hand of the Father to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. So believers... In this age, are not waiting for the kingdom to come. We're living in it now, the amillennialist says. The millennial reign of Christ is not a literal, on the earth, see it with your eyes kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that spiritual is, is a synonym for not actually real. Or the, the world will do that. The secularist will do that. If they say something is, has, has spiritual emphasis or, or has a spiritual meaning. It's not really real. It's just something kind of floating out there. No, Scripture all throughout says the spiritual realm is a real place. Spiritual things are real things. Let us remember that the spiritual realm is where God dwells. Uh, Pastor Daniel reminded us this morning from John 4.24 that God is spirit. And yet God is certainly real. Just because he's spirit doesn't mean he's pretend. So the millennium can also be, all millennialists would say, the millennium can also be spiritual and real at the same time. All millennialists then would see Revelation 19, 11 through 21, and Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, as parallel passages describing the second coming of Christ and the final judgment uh, uh, from different perspectives and with different emphases. On the one hand, you have um, in, in Revelation 19, 17 through 20, or 20 and 21, you have the kings of the earth gathered against the Lord and Jesus destroys the beast and the false prophet. And then in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, you have again this gathering of the nations to oppose God and fire comes from heaven to destroy Satan. Now remember all the way back in Revelation 13 when we talked about the dragon uh, who is Satan and his beast and the false prophet, we said Satan is ultimately a pretender. He's a master pretender, and he creates his own sort of unholy trinity that, that's kind of a, 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 a perverted copycat of the holy trinity, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, up against God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so in Revelation 19, 20, and 21, we have the world gathering together against Christ and his kingdom, and Jesus destroys the beast and the false prophet, those pretenders to the Lamb of God that, uh, uh, that Satan has set up. And in Revelation 20, we have God destroying Satan, who is the pretender to God. So they see these are two parallel passages talked about uh, just from, uh, these are the same event talked about from two different perspectives. In this way, these two passages are recapitulative. They repeat an event from do, two different descriptions. Now the description of the millennium then, Revelation 21 through 6, sandwiched in between these two pictures of the final battle, appears like a text outside of time. 
like the departure from Revelation uh, in Revelation to the heavenly realm to describe the birth and the ascension of Christ in the vision of the woman and the dragon in Revelation 12. That's a, that's a passage out of time. It seems like John is describing things in kind of a, uh, uh, as what God is doing in the world, and then he takes a time out to go to heaven to tell the whole gospel, the whole story of the gospel again from the beginning, and then he comes back down. So all millennialists would say here in chapter 20, what John is doing and talking about the millennium is he's stepping outside of time to talk about a reality that, that pervades many years and then he'll come back, uh, back into his, uh, sort of into history to describe what's going to take place anyway. The amillennial position understands Satan's binding to have taken place at the first coming of Christ. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about binding a strong man. How can you plunder the strong man's house unless you bind it? So as to say about himself, I'm the one who binds the strong man so I can rob his house. I'm the one who binds Satan so I can steal from him, so I can take from him all of the souls that rightly belong to me. The saints who reign with Christ then in this millennial reign uh, age are those who have died and are with Christ in the intermediate state Whatever that looks like, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, Paul says. I don't know what the intermediate state looks like, um, but we will be really with Christ when we die, if we die before he returns. So the saints who reign with Christ are those who have died and are with Christ in that intermediate state, sharing in some way his judicial work from heaven uh, in, in some regard. Now, this position is not without its exegetical challenges, though, like the others. If the millennium is in heaven, experienced by saints in the intermediate state, then what does John mean by the first resurrection? The word resurrection in the New Testament means physical resurrection in every other place in the New Testament, so how can it be only spiritual here? All millennialists have argued that the context of the passage provides the understanding of a spiritual resurrection. Because there is a first resurrection, we may infer that there is also a second resurrection, even though John doesn't state it explicitly. He says uh, at the end, Christ will bring all the dead to life, but he doesn't say second resurrection. So if there's a first, then there's likely a second. The second resurrection, we would say John alludes to in chapter 20, verse 5, when at the end of the millennium, all the dead are raised. And we are told that those who worship the beast did not come to life, meaning they did not experience the first resurrection during the millennium. But they will be subject after the second resurrection to what John explicitly calls the second death. So here we have a mention of a clear mention of a first resurrection and a clear mention of a second death and a reference to the second resurrection, but no mention to any first death. Did you catch that? The all-millennial approach deals with this conundrum this way. Hold on for one more minute. The first death is physical, and everyone is born into it as we are born into sin. When, individual, when an individual comes to faith in Christ, he is born again. He is brought from death to life in Christ. Ephesians 2, Paul says, We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has caused us to be alive together with Christ. So in some sense, we are living the resurrection life now when we trust Christ by faith. We've been born again spiritually. We are living a resurrection life now. When the believer dies, the first death, the physical death, he goes to be with Christ, experiencing all of the blessing of the resurrected state without his physical body yet. This is the first resurrection, a millennialist would say. It's spiritual and real. It's just not physical. When the unbeliever dies, the first physical death, uh, his soul goes either to Hades, which is a holding place for the dead in the Jewish worldview, or to hell to await final judgment. At the second resurrection, physical resurrection, all of the dead, in Christ and not in Christ, are raised uh, in their physical bodies to face judgment. 
Those who are in Christ will go in their glorified bodies to inhabit the new heavens and new earth. Those who die in lifelong rebellion against Christ will go to the lake of fire, which is the second death. And the second death is not physical. The second death is spiritual. Where they'll experience everlasting torment under the righteous wrath of God. So in this way... John is communicating in Revelation that the first death is physical and the second death is spiritual, whereas the first resurrection is spiritual and the second resurrection is physical. Every other occurrence of resurrection in Scripture outside of Revelation 20 is thus speaking about the second resurrection. So John, in talking about the first resurrection, is talking about something that no other New Testament author refers to. But again, it's apocalyptic literature. He does a lot of weird stuff. All millennialists would see the millennium ending with increased rebellion against God, like the premillennialists, and increasing global persecution of the church. But when Christ returns, he returns once to judge the living and the dead, to take his people into the eternal state, because the millennium has ended and the new heavens and new earth at that time are all that await the redeemed. This position of all millennialism was first popularized by the great ancient theologian Augustine of Hippo who's probably the single most influential theologian in the Christian church uh, other than Paul the Apostle. Amillennialism was later adopted by the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and amillennialism has remained rather common among Christians in just about every denomination to this day, along with premillennialism. Postmillennialism, as optimistic as it is, and as much as I would like to be one, uh, has sort of fallen, uh, fallen in popularity, particularly in the 20th century with two world wars and uh, the Korean War and Vietnam War and atomic bombs and things looking really, really bad. Now, there's a fourth view that isn't really a fourth view, but it's a fourth view, and it's called panmillennialism. Panmillennialism is a sort of joking position that says, I don't know what this millennium business is all about, but I know Jesus is coming back to resurrect the dead, take those who love him into the new heavens, new earth, send those who have not loved him uh, into, uh, into eternal or everlasting torment in hell, and I'm okay with that. It'll all pan out in the end, okay? And maybe that's most of you. Let me say, on any given day, so you want to, so here's where I, so I make everybody happy to teach on all the positions. And now here's where I disappoint some of you because I tell you which ones I think are best. Friends, I find it really hard to plant my flag in any one of these three positions because they all have good biblical evidence for their position. I think though that the weight of biblical evidence falls either in the historic premillennial position or in the amillennial position. So most days, I kind of find myself somewhere on the fence, teetering one way or the other, depending upon what I'm reading and what other texts I'm comparing it to and going, ah, maybe, maybe historic premillennialism has the, has the upper hand. Ah, maybe amillennialism has the hand. So this is something I hold with kind of a loose hand. Because at the end of all things, like we know that we won't know everything about Christ's second coming until Christ's second coming. So... Let's not get crazy and start fighting about all the little things in between that no Christian has ever been absolutely certain about uh, throughout the last 2,000 years. Here's the point about the millennium. Of course, in the end, Jesus wins. He brings his kingdom. He reigns with his saints. He destroys his enemies. So church, stay focused on the main thing. The mission matters most. If the millennium was that important, I think God would have, and and having a a crystallized vision of what it is, I think God would have mentioned it explicitly in a number of other texts, uh, another other places throughout scripture. But the millennium is only mentioned here in Revelation 20. And that doesn't mean it's insignificant. It's very significant. But at the same time, we have constant refrain, the constant refrain all throughout scripture of God to his people saying... Take my, fill the earth with my glory. Make disciples of all nations. Bring people in that they might know me and salvation. 
It is of vital importance for us to know that there's not one primary gospel issue that hangs upon your view of the millennium. This is a matter of theology that good, God-honoring, Jesus-loving, mission-focused Christians have held for 2,000 years. Arguments and debates that they've been holding and have not settled. This must also be an area of church life in which Christians exercise charity, exercise grace with those who disagree. Our convictions about eschatological timelines must not obscure the certain and clear call of Christ to be busy making disciples of all nations until he comes again. Gospel proclamation at every point outweighs in importance our pithy obsessions with end times chronology. So let us make disciples of all nations. Let's make disciples of all nations with all the confidence in the gospel to dramatically change lives as the post-millennialist and all the urgency that the gospel requires as the pre-millennialist and with all the assurance and the sovereignty of God as the amillennialist. And let us do this with all joy in knowing that even if our millennial view is not quite perfect, it'll all work out for our good and God's ultimate glory like the pan-millennialist. We have a few more verses. John says in verse 11 of chapter 20, I'm aware of the time, hang on. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and from and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. This is, again, the second, the second resurrection, that physical resurrection. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This verse tells, these verses tell us that as Jesus returns in God's time and, and in his way, that the just judge will render his verdict. The just judge will render his verdict. The final paragraph of our passage today describes the final judgment that takes place at the end of time. There God and the Lamb will sit together on that divine throne with all humanity brought before them. Two books will be opened, one of deeds done in life and one that is the Lamb's book of life. All the dead will be judged according to their deeds, the books of deeds, But we find that it is not the deeds done in life that save someone from the lake of fire. Rather, it's only whether someone has his name in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, that grants him salvation from the second death. Verse 6, chapter 20 says that those who experience the first resurrection because they die with faith in Christ will never experience the second death, which is eternity in the lake of fire. Friends, deeds done in this life, whether you're a Christian or not, are observed by God and are recorded in his perfect memory. He sees all that you do. In some manner, these deeds will play into his final judgment. I don't know exactly what that looks like. John doesn't necessarily care to give us too much detail on that. But what is certain is that eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth has nothing to do with the number of good or wicked deeds that you've piled up for yourself. It has only to do with whether your name is in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb who is slain for the sins of many. All of a sudden here, we're we're taken back to the letter to the church at Sardis. That church that Jesus says, I know you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You look active, you look busy, you're piling up deeds in this book, but y'all are dead. 
And Jesus warns them about their deadness and he gives them a promise for if they conquer, if they overcome through faithful endurance to his name. They say, he says, the one who conquers in Revelation 3, 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. How do you have your, lamb's na- your, your name in the Lamb's book of life? By trusting the Lamb who died for your sins. How are you, how are you uh, clothed in garments from Christ? By depending upon His righteousness to secure your salvation before God. Know this, the just judge will render His verdict. The, the great final judgment is coming. So friend, know today what will be your defense on the last day. Know today, know for certain what you will say as you stand before God to plead your defense on that last day, why you should enter with Christ into the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible makes this much clearer. God is a just judge who will do what is right. It seems that most people, whether or not they are Christian, think this too. God will do what's right. The problem is they have a bad understanding of what right is. They judge right by, we judge what is right by our own conception of morality, not, not, not against the objective picture of God's morality. Uh, popular culture, especially TV sitcoms, reveals a lot to us about how the average person, the average American in our culture, thinks about moral issues. There was a great sitcom the, called The Good Place on NBC that uh, ended its run a couple of years ago. The basic plot of The Good Place follows four characters who have died and think that they have made it to The Good Place. But they know, while in The Good Place, that their lives were utterly sinful and that they really deserved The Bad Place. These four characters become convinced someone made a mistake. Someone let me into the wrong place. Now, I won't spoil the show for you if you haven't seen it. It isn't Christian in the least, but it does show particular insight into how I think most people think about the afterlife. If I do enough good things... I'll get to the good place. If I do too many bad things, I'll go to the bad place. And maybe if I'm somewhere in the middle, I'll go to a medium place. In the show, there's a place called the medium place. There's only one person there, and she's a hot mess. (laughs) One of the main characters, Michael, who's played by Ted Danson, when asked toward the end of the show, when asked what gives him hope for the future, he said, what matters isn't if people are good or bad. What matters is if they're trying to be better today than they were yesterday. You ask me where my hope comes from. Well, that's my answer. Now, in one way, what Michael says is right. The final judgment of God, in the final judgment of God, it won't matter if we are good or bad. The biblical truth is actually in and of ourselves, we're all very bad. We're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all utterly sinful, and we see that when we hold ourselves up to the perfect righteousness of God. What Michael in the good place gets wrong, though, is, that, is the next part. It doesn't matter in the final analysis whether we're trying to be better today than we were yesterday. What matters ultimately and finally on the last day, standing before God and before the Lamb, is not whether we try harder to do better today than we did yesterday, but whether our name is in the Lamb's book of life. What matters on the last day is if all your sin against God has been forgiven, whether you've been sealed by the Lamb as one of His own. And that certainty comes only by trusting Christ who died to make us clean to bring us to God with a clear conscience. Certainly, God gives us a better hope for salvation than merely guessing if we've tried hard enough. He's demonstrated a love to sinners like you and me by paying at the cost of his son's life, by paying for our sins. It is by grace we are saved, the Bible says. 
It's by God's riches given to us at his own expense. And we receive this grace. We come to know this grace. And we have it by faith in Jesus. Faith in his death and resurrection in our place. Faith in the person of the risen Son of God. Not by trying harder today than we did yesterday. And when we come to see the great love of God to undeserving sinners, and when we receive Christ by entrusting our lives to him, we are promised that God will change us from the inside out, making us to love doing what is right. And not as a way of proving ourselves to God. No, but as a way of living out of what God and Christ has made us able to do. We get into the Lamb's book of life by knowing that Christ did for us on one day what we could never do for ourselves in a million days. And for that, we love him. And for that, we make him our king. You want to know my hope for standing before God on the last day? That's my answer. Friend, I pray that's yours as well. Revelation 19.20 tells us in the end, Jesus wins. We can be confident about it. And as he wins, as he brings his final victory, he will judge the living and the dead. And friend, there's no defense before a holy God on that day other than Christ is my king. He died for my sin. I bring nothing to the table of my own salvation except the sin that deserved it. And I fall on the grace of God in Jesus. That is our defense. And friend, you can know today You can have confidence today that your defense will be heard and received by God if your faith is in Jesus. Because Jesus wins, he deserves our faith. Because Jesus wins, he deserves our worship. Because Jesus wins, we can live today with all the confidence in knowing how the story ends. Through every difficult and tumultuous passage and period of time, find your faith, find your confidence in Christ who is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to take those who love him into the new heavens and new earth where they'll live for him forever. Let's pray together and ask God to apply this text to our hearts.